Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wrap, brought to you by Michigan Medicine Headlines. I'm Dan Elman with the Department of Communication. And I'm Dan Zemke of the U of M Health Department of Community Health Services. Today, we're going to talk about ageism and how you can recognize it in your daily work and personal lives. Now, before we get into that important conversation, be sure you get caught up on any of the important episodes of The Wrap you may have missed. You can find the shows on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or on the other podcast hosting platform. Episodes can also be found on the Michigan Medicine YouTube channel and as part of the headlines we can review. On that note, let's bring in Janet Hunko and Yvonne Cutney and Ashton Appleway. Janet and Yvonne work here at Michigan Medicine for Housing Bureau for Seniors, while Ashton is an author and anti-ageism activist. Can the three of you introduce yourselves and what you do in your daily work? Sure. My name is Janet Hunko, and I uh, my working title at the Housing Bureau for Seniors is director. Um, I don't like to say that often because I really consider my job um, being um, being able to work with a, a wonderful group of social workers and other <laughs> staff members, um, mostly social workers, a brilliant bunch of people um, that work really hard to work with older adults. So um, I, I get the pleasure of um, being their manager. I'm Yvonne Cudney. I'm the Community Education and Outreach Coordinator for the Housing Bureau for Seniors. My goal is to educate the public about the Housing Bureau for Seniors, the services we provide, which are primarily eviction prevention and foreclosure prevention. But also I view my role as um, reaching out to the public and telling them about the plight of older adults and their living situations here in Washtenaw County and in the surrounding communities. A piece of education is really important to our mission. And I'm Ashton Applewhite. It's my pleasure to be here with you. And I will be with you in person, um, which I'm excited about in Ann Arbor before too long. Um, I am a primarily a writer, which means I spend most of my time alone in my room in Brooklyn, banging my head against the keyboard and wishing that ideas came more easily. Uh, but I do, I do love what I do. I do a, a fair amount of public speaking as well, although I never imagined I would be a public figure. I came to this field. You'll you'll be hearing way more from me in the in the uh, rest of the podcast uh, um, because I'm a generalist, and aging is the biggest subject of all. It's how we move through life. So I can tell you that if if you told me 15 years ago, I'd be fascinated by aging. I would have said, why do I want to think about something icky and depressing? And I can tell you now that it, um, it just, it's fascinating and it gets more interesting all the time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Janet, let's start with you. What does the Housing Bureau for Seniors do here at Michigan Medicine and in the general community? So we work with older adults and do our best to um, help them maintain and sustain affordable housing. So that mm -hmm. could mean working with a person who is at risk of losing their tenancy to um, an eviction. Um, eviction could happen for many reasons. Could be financial, could be behavioral, could be society in, in terms of um, the climate we're in. Um, so we work with them to um, either keep them where they are or help them move to the next place um, to make sure that they keep a roof over their heads. Um, another aspect of that is with homeowners who could be at risk of losing their homes due to property tax or mortgage foreclosure. So we work with them um, in many different ways. Much, much of it's preventative to um, 
helping them get their property taxes reduced to getting them extended. Um, we have emergency loan funds that we could administer if someone needs it to make sure they stay in their homes. And then in addition to that, we do housing counseling where we um, help a person make an informed decision for the next move in their life. So it could mean, um, you know, do they, are they ready for an assisted living? Do they need independent housing? You know, what makes sense? For, maybe they want to stay in their own home and, and what would make sense for them based on what they, um, what they're able to do and, and, and their capabilities and financial situation. Awesome. Yvonne, can you give us some insight into Senior Living Week, and which is coming up in late September? I'm really excited about it. Okay, so Senior Living Week is it's an event that the Housing Bureau for Seniors puts on every year. We're getting pretty close to uh, doing it for our 40th year in a row. Um, it kicks off with an expo every year. Our expo is going to be on September 30th. In years past, we've had a number of speakers speak on the day of the expo. This year, we've changed up a little bit, and we've invited one person, our special presentation from Ashton Applewhite, to talk about ageism and ableism. And then that's going to be, so that day is full of, we're going to have about 50 different vendors speaking about or presenting their services about aging, healthy aging in the community, in senior living communities, um, things, tools that can be used to assist older adults. And then it's going to be followed by a week-long series of educational presentations, free educational presentations all around the county about things related to aging, as well as um, we have a special presentation this year too, a special educational workshop on human trafficking, which is going to be really interesting to people who need continuing education credits. So we're very excited about Senior Living Week this year. Um, and everything is free, the expo and the educational presentations. That sounds amazing. And of course, you've segued perfectly into bringing Ashton into this conversation. Now, Ashton, I have a question for you that you you may have already actually touched on a little bit in, um, in your introduction. And one of the things you mentioned was, you know, we all get older, right? As we go through life, everybody ages. And, you know, so I, and it, it sort of touched, uh, um, an interesting point for me, because so I use a, a manual wheelchair. I, I don't know if you can, uh, if you know that or not, but we always say with the disability community that the disability community is a community anyone can join at any time, right? Like something might happen and all of a sudden you have a disability. With ages, you know, with the, the older adults, everyone will join that community at some point. Um, whether you want to or not, it's going to be something that, that comes, you know, comes about. Can you talk sort of about your journey toward um, becoming sort of an anti-ageism advocate and your passion for the work and the writing that you do? Yeah, uh, you know, it happened uh, very much the way you describe it. I looked in the mirror. I was in my mid-50s at the time. It was 15 years ago-ish. And I was like, you know, oh, this getting older thing is actually happening to me. And I think, you know, I think it's hard to imagine getting older. I, you know, I, we age slowly. So I don't think that's bias. I think the reluctance you mentioned, like, even if you don't want to, there is a prevailing narrative in this country that aging is a negative experience. Uh, and, and yet no one wants to be any older, ever, never noticed that, you know, and I would, I would try it out the, um, the old saw, um, it beats the alternative, 
until I realized at one point, one of the zillions of things I don't say anymore is that what that really means is the only thing worse than being old is being dead. Uh, I started anyway, back to me, I realized like, oh, it's happening to me. Imagine that. And we all have to get over that hump. Right. Uh, and I started learning, being a nerdy person. I'm not an academic, but I started researching longevity and interviewing older people, people over 80, and realized in a matter of months, if not weeks, how, how off base my ideas about aging were. They were too negative or they weren't nuanced enough. And I want to be really clear, you know, the, the scary stuff is real. There are real things to be worried about when it comes to getting older, getting sick, ending up alone, um, you know, being without supports. So it's important not to say, not to wish those away. They're part of the picture. The thing is, we never hear about the other side of it. All the positive things that aging conveys, which is why nobody actually wants to be any older, even if they're scared stiff of getting older. So I'm kind of in the both sides of the story business. And I became obsessed with why so few people know the full side of the story. It seemed really important to me personally. I have since learned so much about how our attitudes towards aging affect how our brains and bodies function at the cellular level, right? And not to mention the political and social and economic context. And, you know, everywhere in the world, people are living longer. And it just seems really, really important, especially in view of that, that we rethink how we think and act about getting older. Thanks, Ashton. So the Global Report on Ageism published the shocking statistic that at least one in two people hold ageist attitudes towards older adults. Like, how does this happen? Like, what what does it even look like? Well, um, I would put that statistic at two out of two, uh, because two, two out of two adults, because we are all biased. We are all everyone is biased all the time. I think and do ageist things all the time, even though I'm in the business of trying not to do that. I, I, I think that we all have racial bias. We all have gender bias because we live in a society, at, you know, we're, we're what we look like and this, you know, the, the, the pools we swim in shape who we know and how we feel about that. It's part of being human and most bias is unconscious. For those of us who want these fixed traits, things about ourselves that we cannot change, not to determine our access to opportunity, to housing, the important work that you all do in particular, our access to health services, it is an ongoing, um, I, I would say struggle because it's hard to unlearn, but it's also really joyful, important work because it feels right um, you know, to come to understand our age bias in particular age is the least examined of all these biases. So I think, you know, the short answer to your question, Dan, is that we haven't thought about it as much as we have other biases, but, um, you know, it's everywhere. Uh, It is in every aspect of our, our communications, our movies, our magazines, our health system, for example, Um, One of the things I would like to see happen is to have your age not be on the first page of your medical chart. Age is important. I'm not a fan of like age is just a number or I'm ageless. No, you are the number, you know, there's a real number and it's important not to deny it. But sort of paradoxically, I want a world where 
age is recognized and not like, you know, something we feel we have to fudge or hide, but where we give it less value in, um, in, in, it is a it is a lower order identifier, if you will. Sorry to be so geeky about it. A doctor needs to know how old you are. Older bodies respond differently. Some conditions, you know, it, it's a crucial, important part of your physiology and your biology. However, the minute we have a number, all humans, whether it's on a dating profile or in a newspaper story or on a medical chart, all kinds of assumptions about that number. Is it older or younger than you? Is it older or younger than the age at which someone you love died, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we all have these ideas. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but we can't confront bias unless we're aware of it. So the very first and most important task in undoing any kind of bias is, you know, becoming aware of our own attitudes in this case towards age and aging and, you know, it, it's daunting because it's a big job, but all the work we've done around, you know, learning to be less prejudiced about queer people, about people, you know, who don't share our ethnicity, all that work paves the way for understanding. We're not starting from scratch when it comes to understanding this sort of late to the party um, form of bias, if you will. We can build on everything we know and have learned. So I've been reading your book recently. And (laughs) (laughs) this chair rocks a manifesto against ageism. It's a great book. And I think, I think I'm relatively well-educated, fairly progressive. I think I know, you know, I'm aware of my isms, but it's really had me examining on a much deeper level. And you've touched on a couple of things that I've been thinking about. Yesterday, I was sitting out on my neighbor's uh, front porch. He's 78 full of energy, has helped me fix so many things around my house, like put in insulation and put in some flooring, all kinds of things. I wish you lived next door to me. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And um, he was trying to set himself up on the Michigan Medicine Portal yesterday and was having difficulties, like, I'm going to have to call them. And, you know, I have, I, I have, I'm hard of hearing. And when I call them and I tell them my age, they're going to assume it's because I'm 78. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's what happens when we start looking at numbers. And one of the most pernicious stereotypes about older people is that we are technically incompetent. And, you know, the more experience you have with something, whether it's, you know, fixing um, insulation or a carburetor or, you know, filling out web forms, the, the better we get at it. But let's look at the design of those forms. You know, they are often when the um, pandemic was in full force and it became possible to register to get a, a, a vaccine. My partner, who is six years older than I am, so he's 77, he's like a, a wizard. And he had us registered for 17 sites in five minutes, thank God. Um, but it is true that many older people do not feel as comfortable. But honestly, As with so much of this, it is more about class than age. Do you have access? Do you know about it? Did you read about it? Do you have a decent computer? Do you have broadband access? Do you have the time, which he did, to spend a day filling out forms, right? So, you know, age is relevant, but it's very seldom the determining factor. 
Yeah, it's a characteristic, but not the defining characteristic, right? Yeah, and he's right to be apprehensive. You know, we do. And, and again, no judgment. We all, we are all, you know, and we live, you know, you asked Dan, why is it this way? Because we live in a culture that barrages us with negative messages about age and aging from childhood on. We live in a culture that barrages black kids with messages or, you know, with the absence of positive messages and, you know, not a lot of good examples. It's the same reason that women in countries um, with strong gender bias perform less well on math and science tests. It's not because women are less equipped. It's because subconsciously they don't think they're going to do as well because that's what the culture tells us morning, noon, and night. Yeah. So in your TED talk, uh, which was titled Let's End Ageism, you actually said that ageism cuts both ways, that there's sort of ageist attitudes against younger people as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that manifests itself? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm glad you asked that question, especially since I'm coming to a college campus, because a common um, perception is that what I do is just about being old and my message is just for older people. Aging is not something sad and icky that old people do. We are aging from the minute we are born. It is how we move through life. And that's frankly what makes it so interesting to me. You know, every every topic we mention between us on this podcast links to, you know, countless other ones. And we are being ageist. It's sort of a definition in effect. Anytime we make an assumption about a person, or a group of people based on how old we think they are. And sometimes we live in a youth-obsessed culture where youth is linked to beauty in people's minds. It confers more social capital. And we live in a world where, therefore, there is much more prejudice and discrimination against older people than there is against younger people. But younger people experience it, too. You know, in, in a job hunt, in the presumption, what did you know at your age? I mean, I remember um, this was a while ago, but I had to spend the night in the hospital and they weren't quite sure what was wrong with me. And and I looked up at one point and, you know, it, there was this phalanx of doctors around me and everyone looked 12. <laughs> and I, you know, I caught my, is that an ageist thought? You bet. Um, I also thought, you know, this is pretty good hospital and I bet they know what they're doing, you know, and I mean, I knew that they did, but, you know, we all, you know, that they're too, they're too young to be doctors. So that's that's the thing how do we use the words old and young you know do they do they confer value is a sort of interesting litmus test here and younger people experience a lot of it and it's not you know when older people think you know what could that young person know or that young person can't can't know what i'm experiencing you know it 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 could be true of anyone who isn't like us in some way and the best thing to do is you know shut up and um, listen, perhaps ask some questions and find out what they're actually like, what they're actually interested in, whether you have something in common. You may or may not, right? You may like them, you may hate them, but it's not going to be because of how old they are. Ashton, uh, in your book, you talk about intersectionality, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. That ageism is a perfect target for compound advocacy. That's everyone experiences Talk a bit more about ageism's intersection with other isms and specifically uh, ableism. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, I, let me just quickly define ableism, ages to ageism as ability slash disability is to 
um, ableism. It is prejudice and stereotypes and stigma around cognitive and physical function. Um, you know, that's that's a very big question. I talk a lot about that, um, especially in the wake of the COVID pandemic, because of the early messaging that it was only going to kill old people and sick people and sick is a proxy for disability. And this is also the, the way the who died and in what numbers during the pandemic is a, is a perfect example of intersectionality, which is the idea that different forms of oppression inform and compound each other. It is harder to get ahead in the work world in the United States as a woman than it is as a man. It, there are barriers are higher if you are a woman of color and higher still if you have a disability and so on. So there's it's these intersections of all these different um, identities that inform our place in the world and our easy or not so easy access to voice and visibility. Um, it is utterly um, understandable that most deaths of COVID were of old people because our immune functions um, systems function less well as we old so as we age. So that was always going to be the case. That is a function of biology. It is also the case that that black and brown people and people you know without without means without with less less money um, you know. Um, geoeconomic stat died in numbers that were far greater than their proportion of the population and that were not related to age. I mean, more older people in those communities died, but it does not explain the overall death toll, which reflects bias, not biology. The fact that older, that, you know, people with, with less resources couldn't afford to stay home, couldn't afford to shelter in place. Lots of older people died in who lived in in residential facilities because so much of the care the really important undervalued work of caring for older people is done largely by underpaid um, women often without um, you know legal status who have to work many jobs to pay their own rent and who therefore unwillingly and you know horribly became vectors for the virus not only in in residential care but to their own families so this is an example of how all these factors of of age and race and gender and class combined to um you know to to, to grossly increase a terrible tragedy. And uh, you see it, I'm sure, all these intersections in your own work trying to find people with housing. You know, how many of the people you serve are older? How many of them have a disability? How many of them ha are people of color? And do they represent the population, their, their numbers in the population as a whole? I bet not. Janet, uh, would you like to talk about how HBS's work coincides with a lot of what Ashton is uh, advocating against. We were talking a little bit before we were doing a pre-meeting and I, you know, I, I, if I look at it more of a systemic, in a systemic way, um, I think that the attitudes and um, understandings and perceptions need to change within um, the people working with the people we're working with. That's, you're going to have to probably edit that out. Um, I think that so that's one layer that's one layer to everything that's going on where um people 
my colleagues um, a lot of times are ageist unknowingly. So there are a lot of, sometimes it's internal, sometimes it's external, it's not intentional. Everyone has a, is working really hard. Everyone is trying very hard to serve the people um, the best mm -hmm. we can. But without having a better, um, whole, uh, better understanding of our own biases, I think that it's not going to be um, as effective. So in terms of working with um, the clients that we work with, you know, there are, I think a good example um, I, in, in terms of social economics, a lot of the individuals we work with are very, very low income. Um, SSI, so they're making under $1,000 a month living on that. Um, so helping them find a place to go and if somebody is living in a sustainable situation and then a landlord comes up and decides that they wanna make more money on a property, they can, they can be displaced. It's probably a little bit more complicated than that, but it happens. It's been happening all along. So it is, um, you know, we're seeing that connection there. Actually, I... let me weigh in for a sec. Yes, please. If you don't mind. So the thing that we know, we have a good idea about is that um, a disproportionate number of our clients, I always say clients, not patients, but we are a healthcare system. So a disproportionate number of our patients um, mm -hmm are from the 48197 and 48198 zip codes, which is Ypsilanti, where there's a higher percentage of a black and brown population than elsewhere in Washtenaw County. So our numbers um, reflect a lot of people from Ypsilanti um, and less of the, the higher income people. So I think that's where we're seeing that intersectionality. There are many more people in this area, black and brown people who are being affected by the housing crisis in general. Uh -huh. um, and of course they're all older adults because all of our clients are 55 plus, uh -huh. right? So I, I think that's some of what Ashton is talking about. So I know you guys all want to ask a question, but I really have to say this because it just <laughs> made me so happy, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be the final question and it isn't so much about statistics, but there's this thing, um, Ashton in your book where you talk about people often say, I wish I were young again, uh -huh. right? And what they don't, what they really want to do is they want to take their present day consciousness back to when they had a younger body. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, no can do. Exactly. Like <laughs> I say, do you wish you were younger and their faces light up and then they do exactly that. Wait, wait, wait. I don't want to wipe the board clean. And, and you know, we know our years are what make us us. What people are really afraid of legitimately is the specter of cognitive decline, which is not inevitable, and the reality of physical decline to some degree in highly variable ways, which is inevitable. And those are legit fears. But I interrupted you. Yeah. Well, then the piece I wanted to talk that I wanted to say is that you now, like, sure, you'd like to have your 18 year old cartilage back. It would be nice. <laughs> but you dance more now because you're less self conscious. And because you prioritize better and it's that celebration of life, right? Yeah. Experiences yeah, I mean, and life. Yeah, I, I, it's true. And now I can dance thanks to a complete shoulder replacement <laughs> in this guy. I can put my hands over my head again, which I couldn't for a long time. Um, it's funny now to, to be, uh, it sounds a bit contrarian, but you know, ageism can be benign. It can be uh -huh. condescending. It can mm -hmm. be the assumption, 
you know, uh, of that, that people need um, help when perhaps they don't need it or want it, perhaps because of their own internalized bias or whatever. But there is this trope that, you know, old people are wise. You know, we have had more time and we have had more experience, but experience doesn't always confer wisdom. You know, plenty of old, older people don't seem to have learned that much along the way. Uh, so I do, I never, you won't hear me saying, you know, old people are wise because the, the count that puts a value on being older, that makes us seem more valuable in that sense than younger people. And that's never the case. It's what we need in all things is a mixture, right? Is both is certain. I mean, I don't know I was going to say youthful qualities, but aside from physical energy, there mm-hmm. isn't much, you know, and, and strength, agility, those, those go away. But, you know, not much else does this idea that older people are stuck in our ways. Not no truth to it. You know, cur- if you are curious at 20, you're going to be curious at 80. If you never mm-hmm. were, you're not going to, you know, it probably mm-hmm. you're not. You might become more curious, but you're not going to become incurious. Right. We all move through life in different ways and, um, you know, have to deal with this stuff in our own ways. But you don't you don't. um you know, that that fear around the loss of capacity is ableism, not ageism. They are related, you know, correlated, but not causally. And so we need to just, just call, I mean, it's a, it's a cheesy joke in my TED talk, which I did not make up, but we, one of the ageist and, and ableist habits we all have as you get older stuff does hurt more. When I, you know, mm-hmm. roll over in bed in the morning, there's a reminder that I have a lot of arthritis. But um, as I say in the TED talk, you know, if you blame your sore knee, your left, you know, sore knee on age, does your other knee hurt? Mm-hmm. Because it's just as old. Right. You know, um, we all blame things on age when age is not irrelevant, but often not the causing the causing factor that we assume it to be. All of us, we just we do that because that's what the culture says, because they can make money selling you, quote unquote, cures or fixes. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we just real quick, I want to stick with the ableism versus ageism because that's where I can come in and where I sort of have the lived experience. One of the things that I find really interesting or I have found over the past few years um, when we started to work from home and, you know, I met people via Zoom and, and things like that. And in those types of meetings, I look like I am not part of any minority group. I'm sort of a youngish white male, Right. And then I go in and meet somebody in person for the first time after six months of seeing them on Zoom, and I wheel into the room. And it's not even necessarily a negative reaction, but it's a, oh, I didn't realize you use a wheelchair. And so I'm like, would you have thought of me differently if you did know that? You know, and so I wonder if sort of ageism. Same with knowing my age. You want to know how old I am? Okay. But I want to know what changes in your mind when you have a Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of was wondering. It, does ageism or other isms sort of show itself more in certain situations, right? Where maybe on the phone, ageism may not be as prevalent as if you're seeing somebody in person and can more easily sort of realize how old they are. Um, do they sort of show themselves differently in certain situations? Of course, you know, uh, and, and I'm sure you have way more lived experience of this in terms of having a, you know, physical disability than I do. Although for the record, I'm hard of hearing also deaf in one ear. So it's real for, for you know, um, I just read an anecdote. I get a, um, a newsletter uh, weekly, the anti-racist daily, I think it's called, which is terrific. 
and a woman, the woman who writes it is a, a person of color. And she describes, she says, you know, jokes that have, you know, racial, race, racial references are not funny and they're, they're not okay. And she was saying that to a white friend who made a joke that referenced or something he thought was funny in a, in a, in a room. And, and she said, not so funny. And by chance, she was with him a week later in a room where he, as a white person, is in the minority. And he, she said, why don't you try that line out now? And he was, he was you know, in that moment, he realized, of, of course, he, he was defending it in, an, in, a, you know, in a room full of people who looked like him. But it suddenly seemed not okay when he was in a minority. And I think you can transpose that, you know, if you're the only straight person in a room full of queer people or vice versa. So we do, you know, and certainly very much about whiteness. I mean, we, because we white people and everyone, you know, on the Zoom right now is white, we grow up surrounded by whiteness. It's the default. You know, we don't say my white friend came over. We say my black friend came over. Well, what's that about? Right. So, but I, that was one of the millions of habits I'm learning to break. When we are surrounded by this stuff, it's hard to see it. And that's why unlearning is so important, but I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear more about your experience of, of uh, showing. I mean, I remember I have a friend who uses a wheelchair and I had a line in the book about a dance floor being filled with wheelchairs. And she said, wheelchair users, you know, and it was like one of the million, you know, smack my head moments of how could I ever have thought that saying wheelchairs was okay. Well, I didn't know any better. Right. Because it dehumanizes, right? It be you become the tool that you use for independence. And I think that that's, yep. that's one of the biggest things when it comes to language too. like how often you read things where it's confined to a wheelchair or wheelchair bound. And it's like the wheelchair is what gives me independence. It's the exact opposite of pinning me down. Right. And, and restricting what I can do. It's letting me do everything that everyone else is doing. And I think that and I think we have so yeah. much to learn from the disability justice movement where people identify proudly and overtly as disabled rather than ha having it be something to conceal or overcome. And I'm very excited about the potential of forming coalitions with people in that world because we who we who are aging into disability, which is very different from being born with it or be, becoming suddenly disabled because of an accident. Uh, and we need to acknowledge and respect those differences, but think what we could learn about adapting and about identifying as, with that disability as a important and non-stigmatized piece of your identity. And, you know, younger people with disabilities could learn a thing or two from us. Oh, absolutely. And I think also like making the physical world more accessible isn't just for people with disabilities. It's for older adults, too. If you build a ramp, it's going to be easier for everyone to go in or Premise for the younger people, design. right? Like mother or, you know, parents with kids who use strollers, things like that. Like it just makes it accessible to everyone. It has nothing to do necessarily with somebody who uses a wheelchair. Yeah, that's the premise of universal design. And an interesting corollary is the curb cut effect. I don't know if you've heard about that, but when the Americans with Disability Act mandated that all curbs had to have a slanty part, and of course they started being used by people pushing strollers and carts and all the things, once they became ubiquitous, they lost their association with disability and the stigma that comes along with that. Now, 
we need to attack that stigma, of course. We need to provoke deep, deep culture change around those things. But in the meanwhile, having all these things be just a fixture of our built environment and our thought process is sets us on the path to normalizing and destigmatizing them. I love this. But finally, you'll be joining us in person at our Senior Living Week Expo on September 30th. Um, what will your special address be about, Ashton? All these things, all these things, you know, and I hope, I hope you all will show up and there's going to be a Q and a, so ask me questions because everyone's experience is different. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was writing my book was don't use the word should, uh, you know, we each need to move through this in our own way at our own speed. And I have, you know, put my foot in my, my mouth and many, many times around that, especially around women and appearance where there's so much pressure to, you know, dye your hair and not, you know, either have cosmetic surgery or not. And you know what? Zero judgment around any of that. Uh, but it's, it's one thing I know from my own experience so feel and feel so strongly is that it is always better to look at the thing we fear. You know, I, I mean, I think of when I was a little girl and I would leap onto my bed from as far away as possible so the monster under the bed didn't grab my ankles um there there are monsters you know these there are real losses that accompany aging and and we need to look at them but there are also of course all these gains and ways in which aging enriches us and by by looking that in it that in itself just diminishes the fears and makes us more able to put them in context and the benefits of that for our personal uh, emotional well-being it's not healthy to go through life dreading your future for starters much much data which i'd be happy to talk about in person about the effects on our physical and cognitive function mm -hmm. it makes mm -hmm. ageism makes us sick i'll mm -hmm. just leave you with one data point on that People with more positive, realistic attitudes towards aging are less likely to get Alzheimer's, even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. It's not easy to change your attitudes, but it's free and it's doable. So I know that they have made me feel so much better about getting older. I know it's good for my emotional and physical well-being. And um, so I know it's it's good for people to hear what I have to say, although that's a little bit self-serving, but thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Ashton and Janet and Yvonne for joining us. I mean, this has been an incredible wide-ranging conversation, and I really appreciate it from all of you. Um, if you want to learn more about Senior Living Week, which is coming up, as we mentioned, in late September, you can learn about it at mmheadlines.org. That's mmheadlines.org. All right. It's time for the lightning round. When we ask one of our guests four quickfire questions, Janet, you lost in the Connect Four tournament earlier, so you'll be in the hot seat. Are you ready to go? I uh, sure. I don't ask any answer anything quickly, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've talked a lot today about senior living and growing older, so let's stick with that theme. In your dream scenario, where would you like to retire? Um, on my property up north, Michigan, that we're going to start building in a couple of years so that's the that's the dream today might change tomorrow strong answer 
So fall is just around the corner too. What's your favorite fall activity to do around Michigan? Oh my goodness. I, this, there's a theme here. Um, I like to look <laughs> at the colors. Um, and uh, on our property, we have a bunch of maple trees and they're the bright orange and red and, and like to sit and sit by a fire and watch the colors. Nice. All right. I don't think this one will have anything to do with your property up north, but it might. Okay. Uh, last Thursday, believe it or not, was National Waffle Day. So, of course, what do you prefer for breakfast? Is it waffles, pancakes, or French toast? I have to choose from those. You have to choose from those. I mean, you can go off the waffles, board, pancakes, but come on French toast. So I'm going to say a waffle, but it has to be a buckwheat waffle because I've been into buckwheat these days. Um, and I don't really do a lot of sweet in the morning. So uh, we can make them savory. Might be better. I'm a sweet guy myself, so give me all the waffles. Um, but let, let's fill every, And you have to fill every divot with as much syrup as possible. <laughs> Preferably from the maple uh, trees up in Janet's property in Northern. Yeah. See, we've yeah, connected. that's an idea. Maybe we'll do that yeah. in retirement. Yeah. yeah. Tap some trees. Yeah. That's what I do. Um, but let's end on a more serious question. Um, yes. Who would you say has been the biggest influence on you during your career? Who would I say is, um... <sighs> oh, this is going to be very awkward. Um, but I'm going to say Ashton. Um, and one of the reasons, and I, I, this, this isn't planned. This isn't, um, this isn't to uh, blow sunshine anywhere. Um, I didn't give her any money. She didn't give me any money. Yes. There's no endorsements yes. here, but seriously, um, I was turned on to this chair rocks, a manifesto against ageism, um, probably few years ago from a colleague and love the book. And I actually use it in um, the classes I teach at Eastern. Um, I learned a lot from it because I, you know, it's fun to read and it's easy. It's an easy read. I'm not a, I'm not a huge reader, um, but I learned a lot. That's where the about... money endorsement comes in now. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I, I, I learned a lot about my attitudes and, and I think we touched on it at some point today where, um, you know, I, every day, I mean, I teach this stuff and every day I'm using elder speak, which is something we haven't brought up today. Um, but it's, you know, attitudes against aging. Um, I do every single day. So my goal is to, um, is to not do that and to check myself. And I did, I learned a lot from, from, from Ashen and truly this was not a setup. <laughs> I didn't know that. I did not know the question was going to be asked Ashton. <laughs> Thank you so much, Janet. I appreciate it. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Janet, for being a great sport with those questions and for Ashton and Yvonne for also joining us today. Uh, once again, if you want to learn more about senior living week and how you can attend, go to mmheadlines.org. That's mmheadlines.org. We want to again thank Janet, Yvonne, and Ashton for joining us recently to talk about ageism and Senior Living Week. As Dan mentioned, you can find more info on Senior Living Week at mmheadlines.org, along with other important stories from this week. For instance, there was a rundown of this year's flu vaccination policy, and U of M Health West shared news of its 100th open heart surgery of the year, far outpacing their stated goal. Find all that and more at mmheadlines.org. All right, Dan. So we asked Janet where she would like to retire because of Senior Living Week, of course. So how about you? I know that you're nearing retirement age. Where do you want to settle down? At the ripe age of 34. 
looking looking retirement straight in the face. You don't look a day over 37. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that I look older than I actually am. (laughs) Um, I... Well, we're just gonna throw out some places. Uh, one of my faces, one of my favorite places on the earth would have to be uh, Melbourne, Australia, which I spent a few months after I graduated from uh, undergrad there, um, and I hung out with uh, some friends there for a few months, and I got to um, I watched a lot of Australian football there, and I have become a big Collingwood uh, Magpies fan ever since. And if I have to retire someplace, like, hey, I wouldn't mind going on over there. Why not? That sounds like yeah. a fun time. Right. Yeah. How about you, sir? Where um, would you like to retire? Um, some people are looking at Siberia, I hear. Yeah, I've thought about it. Um, that's definitely near the top of my list, but not at the top of my list. <laughs> um, I would not want to do Australia just because of the spiders that they have down there. I am going to avoid that that's at all thing. costs. Um but I do want to go somewhere warmer, uh, but not too warm. Uh, probably, um, I love Arizona. I wouldn't want to do Phoenix. That's too hot. But Sedona would be a great place to retire. Um, it's like yeah. 70 and sunny every single day. So I'm going to pick that and say that that would be the ideal place to retire. For over a century, Michigan Medicine has been on a mission to bring Michigan answers to patients and families across Michigan and beyond. It's why University of Michigan Health is honored to have been named Michigan's number one hospital once again by U.S. News & World Report and to have been named year after year to the prestigious honor roll of the nation's top hospitals. If you need a Michigan answer in your life, think Michigan Medicine and visit michigananswers.com. It's time for the weekly trivia contest. This week's question is, what is the deadline to comply with this year's flu vaccination policy? Once again, what is the deadline to comply with this year's flu vaccination policy? You can find the answer in this week's headlines. And once you know it, send it to headlines at med.umich.edu for the chance to win grand prize. All right. That's all the time we have for you today. Thank you again to all of our guests for joining us. And thanks, as always, to our listeners and viewers for everything you do for patients, families, and each other. We'll see you next time. <laughs>